up on today's show, leaks in the Nord Stream pipeline, accusations of sabotage, who might have done it and why. We'll talk about competition in Canada. A lot of people say it's a big reason we pay too much for a lot of things and maybe our laws are the reason why. We'll have that conversation and buy now, pay later. How many times have you heard that? There's got to be a catch, right? So a story started to emerge yesterday. It actually happened uh, on Monday by the sounds of it. But what we know at this point is explosions rattled the Baltic Sea and then some unusual leaks were discovered on two natural gas pipelines that run underwater from Russia to Germany. Um, and now all kinds of finger pointing has resulted. European leaders, experts pointing to sabotage. Uh, and it's all around this energy standoff with Russia and the war in Ukraine and all that. You know all that. But what's going on now is three leaks have developed on the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipelines. They're filled with natural gas, but they're not delivering any natural gas to Europe right now as part of the whole Ukraine situation. The first explosion was recorded early Monday by Swedish seismologists. A second that night was equivalent to a magnitude 2.3 earthquake, also registered in uh, stations in Norway and in Finland. And all of these scientists saying yeah, there, there were no earthquakes. These were explosions, and shortly after that, we've got leaks within the pipeline. So the question now is, what's going on? Who might have done this? Why? Uh, let's get into that. We're going to have a chat now with Dennis McConaughey, who is a visiting fellow of public policy and energy study schools at the Ivy Business School at the University of Western Ontario, and an adjunct fellow at the Niskanen Centre, a DC-based think tank focused on carbon and energy policy, done a lot of work on pipelines. Dennis, thanks for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. So it's a really interesting story uh, right now. And the discussion, as I say, is not so much on what happened. It seems that everyone is pretty confident it's a situation of, of sabotage. But the question now is, who might have done it? And everyone has a theory. What are you hearing? Well, I think the most obvious question to ask is, who benefits from uh, the, this uh, act of sabotage? Um, and, you know, that that is a question that has led many uh to accuse Russia. Right. Now, now, these are people and entities that are fundamentally opposed to Russia at the moment, most notably the Ukrainians. Uh, and more notably, though, the, the EU has been very cautious so far not to make that accusation. But in a sense, nobody wins from this explosion. Right. Even, even though the pipeline wasn't, neither of these two pipelines were currently delivering gas. Uh, Nord Stream 1 uh, at least held out the possibility that if there was ever some kind of a breakthrough with respect to the Ukrainian-Russia war, where at the very least uh, there'd be some kind of stand-down, uh, there's some possibility that these pipelines could have been you know, restored to their capabilities. And that would have been enormously beneficial to help Central Europe and most notably Germany uh, get through this winter. Now, I think one point's worth making. Um, Secretary of State Blinken said that, you know, the, the, the fact that these pipes can't be used, they, well, they'll have to be fixed. It's indeterminate how long that will take to happen. At the moment, you know, German energy planners, I think, have pretty much uh, had the view that they had no access to gas from these pipelines over this the coming winter. But they're in a razor-thin situation trying to simply keep um, the amount of gas that they need to get through the winter, yeah. uh, they've you know bought as much, filled up storage as much as they could, tried to make other supply arrangements. So much is going to depend on the severity of the winter. So, uh, 
the, the short run consequence is this makes conditions in uh, Central Europe and notably Germany more precarious, uh, even though one would argue these pipes weren't being used anyway. The prospect that they could they come could back be. on would have been uh, very positive. So all this points to the basic question, who benefits from this? And I think everyone can make their most logical inferences as to what party that most logically points you towards. Right, exactly. But then there's the argument on the other side. Well, it's, it's, it's Russia's pipeline. They make money by selling the gas. So they've now eliminated that possibility for themselves as well as, you know, and it was faint. Like you say, it was a faint, but, but it was a possibility. So, I mean, you can sort of point fingers. I mean, there's, and I'm sure you've seen it, the clips circulating on social media of Joe Biden back before the invasion saying if tanks yeah. rolled into Ukraine, NATO would be blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline yeah. and saying, yeah, don't worry, we're going to do it. So, I mean, there's no end of speculation. Well, again, uh, I think one point people need to recognize, there's still substantial amounts of Russian gas that still moves through Ukraine and into Central Europe through land routes. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, Russian trade of natural gas uh, hasn't been suspended. Nord Stream uh, 2 was uh, not completed. That was a action taken in retaliation uh, to the invasion. Nord Stream 1 needed to have maintenance repairs, which the Russians have contested. Uh, the West has dragged their heels on uh, enabling uh, and that reached such extremes where that pipe was suspended operations anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I mean, I, I won't try to parse what Biden said. I mean, he, I think one can make a case that uh, outright sabotage is not what he meant, uh, but he did meant that that option would be taken off the table. And I think his remarks are mostly in respect of Nord Stream 2. And, and the Europeans themselves took that action. Nevertheless, uh, the Russians are still making, uh, still receiving revenue from the gas that they sell into Central Europe through their other pipeline systems that uh, were the traditional ones that weren't moving through the Baltic Sea. So again, I think this, you know, still intensifies the precarious nature of how Central Europe is going to get through this winter, and it is a statement of saying you're very vulnerable, and and who how, the consequences of this are undeniable. It's going to make them more vulnerable. And I think everybody can accept that even as they go through this process as to who did it, who was capable of doing it, and who had the best motive for doing it. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an interesting situation. What about the European Union yesterday saying that, you know, they're they're taking this very seriously, they consider it a threat on infrastructure, and any further, you know, interference with European infrastructure would then drag them into this conflict at a higher level. So, I mean, the tensions are really high, and this has sort of pushed it to another level. Well, again, I think um, uh, one of the realities the EU has is that for, uh, you know, all of their solidarity, they have not suspended gas deliveries into Central Europe. Yeah. Because some of their members can't can't, uh, can't cope if, if those were suspended. Uh So there's some limits to how much their retaliation can be at this point. I think that uh, the uh, other events that are playing out in the Ukraine, the other escalations that Putin may resort to, I think will more likely give rise to some new action on the part of NATO, not so much the EU, uh, because at the moment the EU can... uh, uh, (laughs) 
you know, th- this thing is already constrained by the fact these pipes weren't working anyway. They will try to find out who they will assess uh, culpability for. That will only add to the uh, difficulty of ever getting to a resolution with the Russians here, because this goes to the basic point, I think, of how much more can you be interdependent on Russian gas supply? Right, exactly. And, of course, it's a big question for this country. How much does Canada finally get its act together and fully commit itself to LNG production. But now you're on to something, Dennis, isn't it too late, especially for this conflict, this winter? I mean, we're so far behind, there's nothing we can do in the immediate term anyway. Well, you know, we are already... One thing people should be conscious of is, you know, Alberta gas production uh, and the utilization of the existing gas pipelines that take Alberta gas, Western Canadian gas, into the U.S., down to the Gulf Coast, where it is being converted into LNG... Mm-hmm. You know, we are actually making some contribution in that way. Uh, but that's really utilizing LNG production on the Gulf Coast, not on our Canadian West Coast. Right. It is still a fundamental question, but over time, a long-term uh, consequence of this for uh, Central Europe, and particularly Germany, is going to have to be a rearrangement of where they get LNG supply. Of course, from. yeah. And, of course, Canada and the United States, but just talking about Canada, the more LNG that we produce that most likely will actually end up in Asia, but it nevertheless adds to the world's supply balance of LNG and, in effect, makes the LNG that is actually acquirable in Central Europe uh, you know, more affordable, you know, that's something this country itself should be committed to. And yet, of course, we see that... Uh, the current federal government is still enormously yeah. uh, equivocal about uh, that kind of a commitment because it runs counter to their other their other goals. Yeah, uh, and it's a lesson that appears climate related goals. Yeah, really, okay. really, uh, really tough to learn. Uh, Dennis, unfortunately, I'm out of time. I've got to let you go. But uh, thanks so much for the insight. I really appreciate you joining us today. This week, President of the United States unveiled some plans to reduce the cost of living for Americans. I mean, it's the focus of every government right now, right? Uh, one of the strategies he deployed this week was ramping up competition in the U.S. More competition means lower prices. That's the thinking. Um, all kinds of things going into this, but um, it begs the question, what's the state of competition policy in our country? We've talked about it before. There's some issues. We've had guests on talking about that. You know, we've primarily focused on things like cell service and things like that, other tech. Um, But it extends far, far beyond that. There's definitely some problems. So to get some details on where we stand and what we could possibly do, we're going to chat with Keldon Bester, who is the co-founder of the Canadian Anti-Monopoly Project and a fellow with the Centre for International Governance. Keldon, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with where we are uh, when it comes to competition regulation in this country and the laws we have surrounding competition in Canada. Uh, how are we doing? What are we missing, if anything? You know, we're not doing great, um, and, and we never really have been. You know, this country uh, really hasn't taken competition seriously um, from day one. But I think today, um, as we look at other countries, as you said, with the U.S. ratcheting up, Competition enforcement in areas like agriculture in particular, uh, Canada is increasingly behind, and and that's uh, part of the focus of a report that I have out this week focusing on our merger law. 
Yeah, so let's take a look at that. What are we doing there? I mean, when it comes to mergers, and we know they're in the news quite often, there's a big one right now. Um, what's some of the issues that you've identified with the way we handle that? So I think the big issue, and, and this is not unique to Canada, but we've really uh, underestimated just how harmful these mergers can be, both in the results of increased prices, reduced choice, and reduced investment, as opposed to you know, when it's easy for companies to buy up their rivals as opposed to investing in new capacity and hiring new people. I think we've really underestimated um, just how bad murders can be for Canadians. And our, and our law has reflected that we, we, we are really quite permissive. And I think, you know, as you alluded to, Roger Shaw is an example mm-hmm. of this. The fact that they would propose this merger, you know, buying up a, you know, challenger in a market where we know we pay some of the highest prices in the world I think it's indicative is that they said, well, you know, we've got a shot here as opposed to, you know, what I advocate for, which is um, where we should be deterring these transactions in the first place. Um, Why is that? I mean, have we just made it too difficult to intervene? Is it too hard? Do we need to make it um, so that this regulation and and laws that we have around this can actually be more effective? We just sort of price them out or, you know, force them out of the situation? Well, there's three things, uh, three categories. First, we I think we miss a lot of transactions. The way we notify our regulators um, is is off. We also give them very little time to intervene. And then once they do intervene, the bar is quite high, and we're willing to trade off harms for cost savings that ultimately just go back to investors. And then finally, when we do go to stop something, instead of being you know something straightforward and effective, just blocking the merger. We like to create these complex solutions that either create behavioral requirements or force a company to sell off a part of the transaction, as we're seeing Rogers try to do with uh, their sale of freedom to Quebecor. And, and I think the real problem with that is it trades really real existing competition that we already have for the hope that that might be replaced. Uh, you know, someday soon we we may never know. And so. I think those three things together mean that we um, create create a barrier to protecting competition in our own economy. So, 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 what's the fix? I mean, what can we do if we're going to start to redraw some of these regulations? Like you say, I guess first of all is we need to make sure that the bureau is aware, right, of of, of all the different mergers that are possibly occurring. Absolutely, we need to change how the bureau is notified. We need to make that a wider. Uh, net for them to catch. We need to give them more time. We don't need this artificial timeline. And then we need to reverse uh, some of the decisions and laws that, you know, allow us, as I said before, trade harms off for cost savings, um, you know, discount qualitative evidence of, you know, competition that we know but might not be able to be quantified. And then we need to create a preference for, I think, straightforward solutions, yeah. just say no, as opposed to trying to um, dream up new competitors. I mean, we talk about that so much with everything to do with bureaucracy, right? Just just make it straightforward and simple. That mm-hmm. that improves the the effectiveness tenfold right off the hop. Absolutely, absolutely. We think we're being clever, but we should we should keep it simple. Yeah, I agree with you. So, I mean, just to to sum this up, the current system that we're facing now, we talk about competition and we've all heard politicians talk about we're going to increase competition, and that's going to save you money and you're going to get better deals and it sometimes never happens. Is it because of the laws that we have? Is, are they actually a barrier to increasing competition? 
Well, it's the laws and it's the people who are interested in the laws staying the same. You know, mergers and acquisitions are very profitable for yep. um, bankers, lawyers, and, and the people buying up uh, companies. So, you know, I, uh, I empathize with politicians who maybe want to change these laws but, but face real opposition. But, but the flip side of that is that that, that profit is made off the backs of Canadians, and, and we need to keep that in mind. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, when we've talked about this before, is there work being done to actually deal with this? It's been talked about, and I know even governments have said, yeah, we need to take a closer look. Is there any sort of process that's been started to maybe improve things? Well, we're hoping that one is announced very soon. You know, the federal government has signaled their interest, at least, in looking at these laws. But, you know, to date, we haven't seen anything released. You know, my organization we, we sent a letter requesting that any sort of consultation be open and transparent uh, to the public. But, um, you know, we're still waiting to, to hear back. And so so hopefully sooner rather than later is, is the answer to that question. Yeah, exactly. We'll see how it goes. And uh, we'll follow up with you when it does, Keldon. Thanks so much for your time today. All right. Buy now, pay later. How many times have you heard that, right? We've all heard it all of our lives. It's an age-old promotion run by all kinds of businesses. And and last week, a couple of pretty big players in electronic retailing announced a new partnership offering yet another buy-now-pay-later option for you. In this case, Square and Afterpay are teaming up. Um, so what should you, the consumer, know about this new entry into the retail space? You probably dealt with Square, I think. I don't know about Afterpay. Let's find out. We're going to chat with Kelly Keene now. Kelly, of course, is um, a personal finance educator, a best-selling author, a frequent contributor to this show. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time once again. Uh, so great to be with you, Shay. I do have to say I'm in Toronto. The weather sucks here, so I'm super jealous that you guys yeah. have like, full-on summer right now there. We're talking like record-setting heat today, Kelly. Uh-huh. Like 30. Crazy. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Square. I think we all know Square. Tell me if I'm right here. Square is basically if you're paying for something and they hand you an iPad or a phone or something, that's Square, right? Yeah, and, 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 like, even I was at the farmer's market a couple yeah. weeks ago in Edmonton, and they've got, like, the little square things that you just tap, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when I started out 17 years ago as an entrepreneur, it was hard to get sure. merchant services. So now, you know, if you're doing a side gig or selling ju- jewelry at a farmer's market, you probably have square. Yeah, exactly. You see it all the time. We've all used it. What about Afterpay, though? This one's new to me. What is Afterpay? Yeah. So you were talking about the integration. So I'll talk about that in a second. So Afterpay is probably the most popular buy now, pay later. Now, this isn't like the stuff we, you know, maybe have been exposed to in the past at a furniture store or appliance store or something like that, where they said it was 0% and then they, they gotcha, you know, a couple months later. This is like truly no interest. Spread your payments out over four payments, and we've been seeing it pop online, you know, as an option when you're checking out at certain stores. Certainly hugely popular during the pandemic in the U.S., growing like crazy in Canada, expected to be $5.9 billion in 2022 in Canada. Wow. So the in- Yeah, I know it's crazy. So the integration is right now just for online merchants, so... You know, get ready to see tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of your online stores when you're going to buy something, giving you this option to have four interest um, uh, free payments and spread out your payment. And you get the product now. And of course, if you're a retailer, you actually get paid now, which is really nice, too. It's not like you don't get paid. Immediately. Oh, OK. So, 
Okay. Yeah, so that's well, really nice. Kelly, yeah. this sounds like um, a dream come true. There's, there's, there's always a catch. I, what's the catch? <laughs> well, first of all, it is pretty cool. I love this shea, especially if, you're, if you need something, your washer, your dryer broke, something like that. And, you, you know, you just don't have the emergency savings, and it's either this or throw it on a high-interest-rate credit card. I love that. A lot of people are also using it for budgeting because if you throw something on a credit card, a bunch of stuff, you make your minimum payment, you lose touch with what you're paying, and you, you might just make your minimum payment. This this kind of gives you, like, a budgeting tool, right? You know, it's like, okay, we want this thing, and maybe, you know, you know you've got the money coming in, you've got your paycheck coming in, you can spread it out. And you have like some, uh, attachment to what you're, you're buying and paying. Now, not all buy now, pay laters are equal. So for example, I was flying, I was booking a flight on Air Canada. I don't know if, if WestJet has it or not, but Air Canada has one. I can't remember who it is. Um, but theirs is interest. Like, so okay. it was like, Hey, do you want to split your flight costs? I mean, I didn't, but I kind of went as down, far down the rabbit hole as I could. So theirs was 11 or 12%. Um, you could split your payments as well. I think they had, like, you could split for, you could um, have your payments for a lot longer, but, and it said, you know, you can get approved without, without it hurting your credit score, but if you did, in fact, engage in, and take advantage of it, it would affect your credit score. Okay. Where after pay Because it's a loan, so then. You, you, you got to know the fine print, yeah. Because basically, at that point, you're taking a loan, right? I mean, so it, it is going to affect your credit rating. That exactly, exactly. So that I'm not as much of a fan of, yeah. of, of course, you know, but the, the no interest, I love it. Okay. So this is no, no interest. I mean, this is basically using their money to buy something and paying them back over time with absolutely no cost to you, no matter what, really? Okay. So yes, here's the, yeah, there's always some, some cash. So has to be. You, get six, <laughs> you get six weeks. So it's every two weeks you're making that payment. And they've done, they've designed that because most people get paid in two week installments. Now, if you do miss a payment, you are charged a fee. So it's capped at eight bucks. Uh, so it's not, it's not huge, but you know, you don't want to miss your fees or miss your payments, excuse me. And then if, uh, what happens as well is you no longer can use afterpay if you're not up to date with your payment. So. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, there's a little bit there. Obviously, you want to make sure you're making your payments and you've got that money coming in. But interestingly, Shay, the, the countries where this is really taken off, uh, Square and Afterpay say that 90% of people who are making the payment use their debit cards, actually link up their debit cards. So what that says to me is people are actually using their own money to pay this back. They're using it as a budgeting tool. And I, I like that. Interesting. Okay. So this mm-hmm. is something, and like, how does it work? I, like I say, I've used Square before. I've never seen this. Is this going to be something that pops up um, when you go to use Square uh, somewhere? It's now like, if, like you say, at the farmer's market, I imagine you're not going to use it for 10 bucks worth of lettuce, right. but you know, uh, is this going to be an option that just pops up automatically? Well, it's not bricks and mortar yet. So let's say you go into your massage therapist or something of that sort. But if your massage therapist has uh, an gotcha. e-commerce site with Square, and, you know, my, my brother has a, has a renovation store in Edmonton, and it's hard to get financing. Like, it's hard to actually go to a bank as a small business owner and get financing. Now, if you're with this platform, with Square, you, it, you can just offer this to your customers. So it'll probably take, I would say, a couple of weeks for you to see companies start populating this on their website and giving you this as an option. But, yeah, like maybe you have a uh, mental health professional you're seeing sure. and you want to split those payments out or... 
uh, you know, PetSmart's on there. All kinds of Urban Outfitters are have this already. So you're just now with this integration announced last week. I think you're going to see this everywhere. Hey, Kelly. So how do they get paid? How how does Afterpay make money doing this? Are they hoping that someone's going to, you know, hit the trigger that you talked about, or how do they get money out of this? Well, I mean, remember merchants, just the same thing, like how does Visa MasterCard make money, right? So we, as the consumer, we don't pay anything, but we know that it costs the merchant money. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the same thing. PayPal, that's that's how they're making their money is through the actual merchant paying it. And that's, you know, it's a cost of doing business. But like I said, when I started out and I had to approve for Visa MasterCard, you had to have impeccable credit. The fees were, were, you know, quite significant. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's just a cost to do in business these days. Very interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.